Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, November 1st, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Y. Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. It is officially November. We have gotten past uh, October. We, we have unlocked a new achievement. and uh, Merry Christmas season, everyone. Yeah, I already had my Christmas tree up uh, for reasons I won't discuss here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Actually, no, okay. I, it's I, from or- last year. No, I ordered <laughs> – I do notoriously keep my Christmas tree up much longer than I should. But I ordered a new uh, – you know, I have the fake tree instead of buying a tree every year because I think that's wasteful. Um, no offense or <laughs> no judgment to anybody who does that, but uh, we bought a new one, a bigger one, and when it arrived, it came in a package that was much bigger than I expected. So I was like, you know, we got to set this up and see if it fits <laughs> in our place, and it did. And I was like, you know, what? we're not going to take this down; we'll just leave it up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, I still got to decorate the tree. But uh, when do you guys start uh, putting up? the christmas uh season ornaments and stuff like that like the, i think the beginning of december maybe the first week of december or something i think uh i my wife is not in the room at the moment so she would have to fact check <laughs> me on that but uh i feel like that i have a pretty bad memory but i think that's that's about when we do it what about you is she for me it's immediately after thanksgiving because i have to you know let thanksgiving have its time to shine i think it's an underrated holiday but at the same time i'm very excited about christmas i love decorating for it and uh, i try to get the the decorations up pretty quickly see i'm on the disneyland schedule where like once (laughs) halloween happens they take down the halloween decorations and then it is now uh holiday time until the end of december so uh, I want I want it to play as long as possible. I usually don't even take my tree down until I'm back from Sundance. So it wow. is a whole uh, what is that like three months or something <laughs> insane. But okay, people did not uh, pull up this podcast to listen to us talk about uh, Christmas or whatever holiday. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, 
Let's get into the news. Let's start off with a uh, a bit of breaking news that just hit that uh, Ewan McGregor is going to play the Batman villain Black Mask, but not in the new Batman movie. HD, tell us about it. So Birds of Prey has cast its big bad. Birds of Prey has um, – Ewan McGregor is in talks uh, with the Birds of Prey production to play Black Mask, who is commonly known as a Batman villain, uh, as the villain in Birds of Prey, which is being directed by Kathy Yan and will star Margot Robbie, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, Rosie Perez, and Junae Smollett-Bell. So he uh, is in talks to play Black Mask, a Gotham mob boss and a frequent Batman foe who uh, is known for – like being a very brutal uh, mob boss who enjoys torture and wearing creepy uh, titular black masks that sometimes have the power of of hypnosis. Um, It's a lesser known um, Batman villain who came about back around like 1985 and uh, is um, has not really had a lot of time on the screen. He appeared in um, the Batman animated film, Batman Under the Red Hood, but mostly is has been relegated to the video game um, domain. So, does this does this bit of casting make you at all more excited for this film? Well, I love Ewan McGregor, and I'm very excited to see him play a villain. He doesn't often do that. He kind of did in uh, FX, the FX series Fargo, um, but this would be the first time I think. I don't want to say that uh, like. Um, confidently because i'm not quite sure but this will be the first he's playing a a villain in a blockbuster film at least i can say that so i'm and just see him stretch his acting chops in that regard um black mask is a villain that i'm not really interested in i've always kind of seen him as like the gritty 80s uh update to penguin he's kind of the same vein except a mob boss rather than just a wealthy corrupt businessman so i'm not quite interested in the villain but um this is not a batman film it's with birds of prey and it's possible they could revamp black mask to make him more interesting and uh, a more sinister foe for uh the female-led team it's ca- kind of similar to what they did with um this is a marvel show but with um the uh, with Kilgrave, who was a like d-list daredevil villain and became uh, jessica jones most uh, the best baddie so uh it's possible that they could do that with black mask here yeah, and it, it probably shows us that Matt Reeves is not planning to use Black Mask in his Batman movie. And I know, you know, I can't think of a Ewan McGregor uh, big villain role, but I'm sure there is one out there. We're going to get an email or a tweet uh, like we did yesterday uh, yes. when HT, you said that Attack on Titan was a mecha anime. Yes, I apologize for that. That was my mistake. Um, I, To be fair, I, this was when I first was when I first heard of Attack on Titan, people were calling it like the successor to Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is one of the greatest animes of all time. So I scoffed at that. But I also somehow got it in my head that they were similar in that being a mecha anime. And Attack on Titan is not a mecha anime. There are no giant robots. They do fight giant monsters, but not with robots. But not with robots. Okay, let's move on to our next story, and this involves stunt performers. Apparently, with uh, all the streaming uh, content going out there, it is getting worse for Hollywood stunt performers. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so almost a year ago, we wrote about how uh, costs for producing TV shows and, and content in general have skyrocketed in the peak TV era because showrunners and production crews are often thrown into 
higher positions that they may not have been ready for because, you know, if there are only 400 experienced showrunners in town, for example, and there are over 500 scripted shows on the air, that's a bunch of extra showrunners that uh, that people are going to have to step up into those positions. So where inexperienced showrunners might go over budget and cost a network some money, inexperienced stunt coordinators, that's a whole different thing because people can and have died on film sets at uh, uh, you know a more alarming rate recently than uh, in years prior. So The Hollywood Reporter has this really good breakdown of a bunch of interviews with people um, in the stunt community talking about uh, two key stunt performers who have died recently on sets. Uh, we wrote about both of these when they happened. I think we probably talked about a couple of them when they happened on the, or at least one of them when they happened on an earlier episode of the podcast. But uh, somebody died on the set of The Walking Dead, the AMC show, and um, a motorcycle rider named Joy Harris died on the set of Deadpool 2 during her first stunt. Um, basically, the entire piece just sort of takes a step back and looks at the industry as a whole and points to, like you said, Peter, the rise of these, you know, all of the content that needs to be created for all these different platforms and just um, is trying to assess what can be done to help make the stunt people uh, give them a safer working environment. Because a lot of these productions out there are trying to uh, cut corners and just try to get things done, you know, as quickly as they can without necessarily having doing the due diligence of having um the most experienced people possible uh, on set to sort of protect people. So that's that's the gist of what's going on. Have Have you ever been on set when a big like stunt was being filmed? I'm trying to think. Um... I can tell you, I was on <laughs> the set of that uh, first Transformers movie with uh, Mark Wahlberg. What is that? The Last Night? Um, I don't know. Age of Extinction? Age of, yeah. It's Maybe? That, I don't... that one. And they, they were filming huge... Uh, stunts with pyrotechnics and stuff. And it, uh, even at the rate and speed that Michael Bay likes to film things, it was amazing to watch, like, the safety, you know, the meetings that they have, how they clear the set. And, you know, even us, the press on set, we had to, like, get to a, you know, a, a far back range where, like, mm-hmm. even, you know, debris couldn't even get to us. So it's, it's – Right. Yeah. But – um. You know, that's a big, huge budget film. You're, you're talking about the smaller stuff. Yeah, and like the SAG-AFTRA, the um, the guild that represents actors and, and stunt coordinators, has uh, announced that they're going to try to put some sort of um, like a, a standardized uh, guideline out there as an online registry that's going to go online in 2020. But uh, as a couple of the people in the, the Hollywood Reporter piece say, that's just a guideline. That's not going to actually stop producers from hiring people who don't meet those standards. Um, It's not necessarily like a a hard line enforced thing that the industry is going to do. So I don't know. It's a question without an answer right now. Um, And, you know, you've got a number of fatalities on sets sort of uh, on the rise since uh, 2015 or so. And with Apple and Disney getting into the streaming service game pretty soon, I mean, it, it seems like things might get worse before they get better. Yeah, especially with all that competition. Uh, and speaking of competition, Netflix, uh, we've been talking about how they have some films that are going to be contending for some awards this season and to promote those, to actually make them uh, you know, qualify. They are planning on releasing them in theaters. And we, we kind of that was kind of all we knew until now. Now we have the details. HD, tell us about it. 
Yeah, so Netflix has been kind of notorious for being uncompromising about their day and date theatrical and online release, which means they would release um, their original films in theaters and on the streaming service at the same time. Uh, this kind of became a point of contention when they uh, butted heads at the Cannes Film Festival, which got them banned from that festival. But now it seems the hype around, especially their upcoming film, Roma, is starting to get them to change their minds about this stance. So Netflix has announced that they will be releasing Roma, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and Bird Box uh, several weeks before all three films streaming debuts. This is a big move for Netflix because they were so stubborn about those rules before. Uh, Roma, uh, in particular, will have the longest uh, before streaming release in theaters. It will be released three weeks before uh, the online release, whereas Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Bird Box will have a one-week theatrical release before they their debuts on Netflix. Do we have any idea why they budged? Because we've heard, you know, the head of Netflix time and time again say that this was never going to happen. So I'm, I'm just shocked. <laughs> I really think that it's the hype around Roma, which a lot of critics is kind of putting neck and neck with A Star is Born as the front runner at the Oscars this year. And a lot of the reason that Netflix has become such a like disruptive influence in the industry is that with like theater chains and with film festivals is that they refuse to um, like renege on their uh, day and date release rules. But now uh, with Roma being in serious contention, maybe Netflix is kind of conceding a little bit. Um, they haven't had a one of their original films be nominated for Best Picture yet. They had a few nominations for Mudbound last year, but maybe they're just trying to um, kind of uh, woo, yeah, woo the industry a little bit yeah. to try to get their Best Picture nod. Yeah, I wonder if the, if this is a concession to get those screens to actually screen, you know, a movie. Like, I know a lot of theaters think that, like, if they put a film day and date in theaters, no one's going to go, no one's going to buy a ticket to the movie theater and show up to see it when they could just be watching it, you know, on their Netflix at home. But uh, it'll, it'll be curious to see if they do more of this. Would uh, Ben, would you be interested in seeing Netflix original movies in the theater? I think so. I think they're especially, you know, you've got you've got so many distractions at home. Right. And and the idea of watching something like Roma, for example, I think um, I don't know. It's a it, that movie is an especially interesting uh, case study here because it's a movie that is in black and white and it's in a foreign language and it's got subtitles. And, you know, most people uh, would probably not pay to see something like that in theaters. But uh, theoretically, a lot more people will be able to see it on Netflix. But then at the same time, you they have to contend with all the distractions that come with watching a movie at home. So I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. But, yeah, I think in general, I would love to see Netflix do stuff like this all the time. I think um, HT really hit it on the head there. I think it's all about the competition. I think especially they're, they're feeling it considering that Amazon already has an Oscar win under their belt for best original screenplay for Manchester by the sea. I feel like Netflix is just like, all right, we have disrupted the industry, but now we've got to be, you know, a major player in the awards game. And I feel like that's the the real motivation behind this move. Yeah, it's funny to uh, disrupt the industry more. They got to go to, you know, play 
the, the, the by the rules of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of something that is is made for the small screen, that could have been on the big screen, we have learned that the original plan for Game of Thrones was to end the series with a movie trilogy. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so um, Entertainment Weekly has a big uh, cover story about uh, Game of Thrones Season 8, which is the final season that's coming up next year. And uh, we still don't know too much about it, but we do know that, as you mentioned, they were originally planning, David Benioff and uh, D.B. Weiss, the showrunners, were originally planning on ending the series with a three-movie trilogy in theaters. So uh, I'll I'll read you a quick uh, excerpt here. The final season could be six hours long and released as three movies in theaters, just like George R.R. Martin's best-known influence, The Lord of the Rings. It's not that the duo wanted to make movies per se, but it seemed like the only way to get the time and money needed to pull off their finale. Uh, It's what we were working towards in a perfect world, Weiss said. Uh, We end up with an epic fantasy story, but with the level of familiarity and investment in the characters that are normally impossible in a two-hour movie. So that was their original plan, but... HBO stepped in and basically just said, hey, we're, we're uh, you know, we're making TV over here. We're not exactly, <laughs> uh, you know, making a bunch of movies. So we'll give you the resources that you need to uh, tell the story that you want to tell on a tentpole size scale, but just on TV instead of in theaters. Um, and that way, it, you know, it, it keeps uh, Game of Thrones as a television show and doesn't like split things up and, and direct people uh, who are already paying for a subscription to HBO to go pay for, you know, individual movie tickets and all of that kind of stuff. And it just wraps things up, um, you know, yeah. with a neat bow. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, I, I just think back to what they did with Entourage, with the Entourage movie sort of wrapping up that story. However, what a year, a couple of years after Entourage went off the air. And that was just like, that was so bad. <laughs> and, and it made no sense to me that, that the network yeah. would want to, um, you know, point people in an, another direction like that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they made this decision to sort of keep Game of Thrones uh, all contained on the small screen. Well, the Game of Thrones creators were like, fine, we'll just go make a Star Wars trilogy instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did we learn any more from this EW cover story? Usually there's a bunch of bits, right? Yeah, there's a couple little pieces, uh, you know, quotes from Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark. Uh, one thing that I found kind of interesting was a quote from Brian Cogman, who was an assistant to Benioff and Weiss before becoming a writer on the show and eventually moving his way all the way up to co-executive producer. He said that the final season is all about all of these disparate characters coming together to face a common enemy, dealing with their own past, and defining the person that they want to be in the face of certain death. It's an incredibly emotional, haunting, bittersweet final season, and I think it honors very much what George R. R. Martin set out to do, which is flipping this kind of story on its head. And that um, that quote, that last part about flipping the kind of story on its head, is what really interests me, because I feel like for the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones, it's been locked in this much more traditional form of storytelling and not really um, getting back to the roots of what it did in the very beginning, which was constantly subvert people's expectations and and flip things on its head all the time, uh, do unexpected stuff all the time. So it sounds like maybe that's kind of what they're trying to get back to uh, in the final season. So I'm, I'm very interested to see what that translates into. You know, I, I know we've had these death pools for Infinity War before Infinity War came out, but I feel like the big death pool is going to be for this final season of Game of Thrones. Like, how many people do you think are actually going to make it out alive? I would not be surprised if only, like, three three of the main characters uh, survived the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, If you had to put your bet on one of them, who would it be? Um, 
I would say that Arya is going to live and yeah. she's going to she's going to do something horrible and be like her curse is going to be that she survived this whole thing. That's my vibe. Um, I, I feel like we've been talking about Bad Boys 3 for <laughs> five, six years now. Uh, you know, they've had a tough time trying to get this uh, on the tracks, but now it it seems like it's happening. And Martin Lawrence has confirmed he is back for this one. HD, tell us about it. Yeah, so the long gestating Bad Boys 3 uh, last month received the green light from Sony. And while Will Smith was on board, it was a big question mark around Martin Lawrence, who has kind of remained the lone holdout for this franchise. But today, in an Instagram post, uh, he confirmed that he is a bad boy for life and is returning for Bad Boys 3, a.k.a. Bad Boys for Life. So, and you were right, Peter, it has been a long time and it's actually been 10 years oh, since wow. we've been talking about Bad Boys 3. 2008 was when Michael Bay considered helming the third entry to the franchise and it's just been a revolving door since then. And Slash Film's been around now for 13 years, which is a long time. And we're getting to the point that there are franchises that we wrote about in the first year or two of Slash Film that are finally getting made. <laughs> that's uh, insane, an insane journey. Uh, I just wonder, like, what else did Martin Lawrence have going for him? That, like, <laughs> why, like, what is his schedule like that he's like, oh, no, I don't want to do Bad Boys 3 because I don't see, you know, a ton of Martin Lawrence films coming out. I can't answer that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, are, are you excited for a new Bad Boys movie? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan. I've only seen the first one, I think, and it was a long time ago. So I'm not like a huge fan of the franchise, but I'm sure many people are. I, I out like there. I like the second one better than the first one. Okay. Um, even though it kind of devolves into something that doesn't make much sense. Ben, are you a fan of this franchise? Um, I've seen both the movies. I really enjoyed the second one in the theaters when I saw it, but I haven't really thought about it since then. Uh, I'm not sure how well it would hold up in, you know, uh, under modern scrutiny. But uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I am always a big fan of Will Smith in uh, a crowd pleasing summer blockbuster. So I'm anything that will get him back to that position whether or not that means that martin lawrence is involved or not uh i'm yeah. i'm all for yeah i'm I'm all for a buddy comedy when you know those two have the chemistry that they have um but i don't know <laughs> we'll let to see how this one turns out let's move on to uh, another announcement from netflix and that is that they have announced stranger things day my first yeah, so... my first thought here ben is what the heck is Stranger Things Day and what does that even mean? So Stranger Things Day is November 6th. It's going to be celebrated on November 6th, presumably every year moving forward. And the reason for that is because on November 6th, 1983, that was the day that Will Byers went missing in the first season of Stranger Things. So it's basically just the new uh, May the 4th be with you Star Wars Day or Batman Day or Alien Day or whatever. Stranger Things is, uh, you know, Netflix is is <laughs> they're disrupting everything, including the very concept of our own calendars now, Peter. So they're uh, they're trying to to plant a flag in the ground on November 6th for Stranger Things Day. And what what is actually going to happen on that day? Well, uh, Bloody Disgusting says that the Stranger Things themed haunted house at Universal Orlando uh, at the Halloween Horror Nights there is going to be reopened to the public 
just during the day for that day only for people to you know, explore and, and celebrate Stranger Things in that way. Um, I speculate in the piece that maybe they could release the first teaser trailer for uh, the third season of the show because six months ago was when they uh, put out a video saying that they were in production on season three and we haven't really seen any big updates or anything since then. So that would be a good time to, uh, to you know, start teasing people. I think for season two, they released a video that just had episode titles. So I feel like they have to do something like that at least um, to sort of uh, quote unquote celebrate this first Stranger Things Day. Yeah, it has to be more than just a theme park thing. Um, I was at the bookstore the other day and I came across this book called Stranger Things Worlds Turned Upside Down. And it's a making of, I think, the first two seasons. And it's a really cool book. I was actually almost going to buy it. Uh, I didn't because who needs more books? But <laughs> um, <laughs> this book is like, it comes in like, it is it is presented almost as if it's like a used book from like the seventies, like uh, like the the dust jackets all kind of rip and torn, and there's like a, a price sticker on it that's like you know been marked down, and like it, when you flip through it, it's actually kind of a cool look inside. Uh, like there was like a couple pages of just like what the Duffer brothers used as influence for the movies and uh, from the movie world. And there was mm-hmm. a couple of like, you know, here's like Stephen King influences. I don't know. I think fans of this franchise would, would kind of dig this book. Uh, What's so, it called? Uh, Stranger things worlds turned upside down. Hmm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely like one of those, and it's one of those things that has like, you know, pull out things in it like there was like a map of um hawkings uh in there and actually uh, th- there was even like uh on the back of the dust jacket if you take the dust jacket off of the book it's as if one of the kids from stranger things was doodling on the back of the du- dust jacket it, w- it was very detailed and hmm. uh very cool i think it would be a cool uh christmas gift for uh, if you have a stranger things uh fan uh in your family or friends but uh, yeah. Anyways, and Netflix uh, can send a copy to all of us for that free plug that you just gave. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was not an ad. I, I do not own this book. I was just checking it out, and I thought it was kind of cool. Um, but anyways, okay, let's move on to our final story, and that is Top Gun Two, which is gonna which is gonna reunite Tom Cruise with Christopher McQuarrie. HD, what do we know? Yeah, so Christopher McQuarrie, after he directed Tom Cruise to critical and commercial success in this summer's Mission Impossible Fallout, is reuniting with him again to rewrite the Top Gun 2 script. So the script is uh, has been penned by Peter Craig, Justin Marks, and Eric Warren Singer, and is uh, essentially already completed, but... Um, McQuarrie has been brought in by Cruz for a few rewrites, um, which is something that he's done before for films like um, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. And um, I think that was the only one. Mission yes. Impossible oh. Rogue Nation, I think. Or, or uh, yes. I'm sorry, not Rogue Nation. The one Ghost, before that. Ghost Protocol. Ghost yeah. Protocol. Yeah. And The Mummy as well. Uh, this will make it McQuarrie and Cruz's 10th collaboration together. Uh, they worked first worked together in Valkyrie and McQuarrie has become Cruz's go-to screenwriter for a lot of films. I mean, th- this just seems kind of like a polish, right? Yeah, so it's just a polish for a few rewrites. Um, and uh, sources told Empire, which is um, which conducted this interview with Cruz and McQuarrie, that uh, the script has already been mostly completed. Does it excite you that he's going to be re- 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 re-
Yeah, I like that all their team-ups together. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout were both great. And um, Edge of Tomorrow, of course, is one of my favorite sci-fi films of this past decade. So I think that they are a match made in heaven. And it, it makes <laughs> sense that Tom Cruise is bringing back McCrary for this because he likes to work with people he's worked with before. I just don't know who's excited for Top Gun 2. Like, I have a friend that loves Top Gun 1, but I don't run into many people. And then, actually, this holiday, uh, this Halloween season um, at various parties, and I went to this, you know, uh, the WeHo Halloween Carnival. There were so many people dressed as uh, Tom Cruise from Top Gun 1, and I, I, I find that weird. Like, is that movie still in the, like, popular culture, like, in a big way? I mean, I think it's a classic. I don't know. I I'm not sure like where it falls on the millennial scale of uh, of awareness, but um, I well, know for you know all of my friends, people my me? age, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, HT has felt uh, cited here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that people are definitely aware of it through pop culture osmosis, as they are through a lot of like of a lot of Tom Cruise classic movies. Before I watched, I knew of. You know the iconic scene where he goes, "I feel the need, I the need for speed," and just like <laughs> high fives, uh, goose. So that's a scene that's gone down uh, in history, and I think a lot of people will dress up as like Top Top Cruise and Top Gun without really having seen the movie or knowing the movie well, just because it's fairly easy and recognizable costume. And it seems like they're trying to recapture some of that magic, like the original movie used, like. Uh, mostly uh, practical footage from those fighter planes. And uh, I, I know, you know, production on this kind of shut down for a little bit as the, the actors actually had to go through some extensive training so that they could actually film a lot of this, a lot of the stunts in this movie actually, you know, up in the air, you know, not in front of a green screen. I feel like Cruz would have it no other way, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, that's his uh that, that seems to be his like w- one of the parts of his legacy right like if you think about tom cruise you think about uh, practical effects now which is kind all of all the ways he almost killed himself yeah, for sure uh, okay that brings us to the end of today's slash film daily uh hd where can we find more of your work online you can find me work writing every day at slash film.com and i'm on twitter at htranbui Ben, where can we find you? I am also at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question, comment, concern, some feedback, send it to us at peter at slashfilm.com. I know we haven't gotten to a mailbag in a while. I'm hoping that maybe news will slow down and we'll get to some some questions tomorrow. Because we even had some questions for Halloween, which has passed. So uh, we, we, we the mailbag is getting a little uh, old at this point, a little stale. Uh, but yeah, so if you have any questions, please send them to peter at slashfilm.com. And as always, go to our iTunes page, write us a glowing five-star review, Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Okay, so how many letters do you think are going to come in, people complaining that I shouldn't have my Christmas tree up for three months? Why would people complain about that? It's the Christmas spirit. Who hates Christmas? Well, no, I shouldn't say that because there are tons of people who hate Christmas. There's a war on Christmas, HG. Oh, right. Oh, God. (laughs) Ah.